Oh, you guys, we have a, uh, we have a wonderful, wonderful occasion uh, for us today to celebrate. Um, we started our membership uh, process, our church membership process, uh, last week. And uh, I want to, in a minute, bring up uh, the Sides family because they went through uh, membership with us. And I want to just pray for them as we accept them into, into membership. Um, but I wanted to also just kind of highlight, you know, the importance of church membership. I'm so excited about this because, uh, you know, I, I do believe that membership is necessary for the purity of a church. And so I'm excited about it because God is purifying our church. And, uh, you know, I remember the last time I started a church, uh, we started with, oh, 60, 70 people. And by the time we started putting membership together, uh, those people vanished and God gave us about 60 or 70 other people. <laughs> so as you can see, uh, church membership will really test uh, your, the, the, you know, just the, your, your allegiance to the Lord. It will really test whether or not you're committed to Christ. And it has that sort of weeding out effect. And so uh, I'm excited about that. Um, even if uh, every person here, uh, we lose every person here, and God gives us a whole nother batch. No, I'm just joking. I don't want any of you to go anywhere, uh, but, uh, but I, I can't help but to be excited about uh, this purifying effect that church membership has uh, on the church. And let me just tell us, you know, remind us again of why church membership is important. Number one, it's important because God calls us as shepherds to be able to identify our sheep. That's the number one reason. God calls us as shepherds to be able to identify our sheep. Uh, Peter tells the elders there in 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock that is among you. Uh, so they're just the, the obvious responsibility of a shepherd to know his sheep. Secondly, the sheep must be able to identify their shepherd. Uh, so many times we talk to uh, people on the streets even that claim to be Christians. When you ask them uh, if, they're, if they go to church, oftentimes they say no. They say, no, I kind of do my own thing. I kind of have my own religious, you know, thing going on. And, and uh, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I said, well, how could you possibly obey the Bible where it says that you have to submit to the elders that have charge over your life? It's an impossibility if you don't believe in church membership. And so, and the other thing is this, is that members among yourselves, you should be able to identify each other. You need to know who's in covenant membership with you so that you know who it is that you're responsible for in terms of fulfilling all of the one another's of Scripture. And so as we move forward throughout the next months and years, Lord willing, with church membership, just realize that it will have such a, 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 a purifying effect on our church for us to have a high view of membership and, um, and all that that entails. So without further ado, I want to call the Sides family up here. I want to pray for you guys. I know how much, Carolyn, you love being on stage, so I'm ex so excited for you to come up here. <laughs> Pat, I'm going to call Pastor Allen, too, to come up. Thank you, guys. Come on up. I know it's kind of small up here, but we'll all fit. Praise the Lord. Um, you can stand and face everybody. I'm sure they want to see you. Sure. They're, your back's pretty cool, but I'm sure they want to see your face too. Um, I want to read a scripture for us, and this is a Romans chapter 12. As we consider our obligation to one another in the body of Christ and what it is our relationship to our fellow members ought to be. I'm just reminded of this passage here in Romans 12, 9, where the Apostle Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. 
cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and then lastly, practice hospitality. Have each other over in your homes. Practice hospitality. That word that Paul uses there, show each other preference, it literally means outdo one another in honor. Think about that. Is that the way that you view the body of Christ and your, your, your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, your fellow members, that I'm going to outdo this member in honor by the way that I love them, by the way that I serve them, by the way that I show them hospitality? I tell you, it will change everything about our church if every member of our church takes on this mindset. So would you guys join me and uh, Pastor Allen as we pray for Jason, Carolyn's sides. Let's pray together, okay? <clears throat> well, Heavenly Father, we're so excited. We're so delighted to have the sides family with us. They have been nothing but a blessing to us. And Lord, we look forward to, uh, Lord willing, many years of ministry together laboring and, and, and fighting the good fight of faith together with this family. And we pray, God, that you would just lead our church on how to rightly uh, love this family and nurture this family and come alongside of this family to fulfill everything that you've called us to do as a family of God. Lord, we have blood family. Lord, we have our little communities at work. We have our little communities out in the world in various places and in different ways. But Lord, there is no community and there is no family like the family of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would knit us together as a tight-knit family. And I pray that you would cause us to love one another with all purity, with all sincerity, as the scriptures say, for your sake and for Christ's sake, for your glory and for the good of your people. Lord, we pray for Jason, we pray for Carolyn, whatever giftings, whatever gifts you've put within them, we would like to see those things flourish. We would like to see those things fostered and nourished and, Lord, increase evermore. And I pray that Heritage Grace would be a place where Jason and Carolyn can use their gifts to the glory of God and live a very fruitful and fulfilling life in Christ. We thank you so much for these dear brothers and sisters, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. <laughs> bless you guys. <laughs> All right. One more thing. The stage has become my regular old step climber up here, up and down, up and down, just fine with me. You guys, well, if you would, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 is what we're going to be looking at today. Let me read the scripture for us, and then we'll jump right into the, uh, right into the text, okay? Let's read uh, together First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, 
being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, our whole life will one day not only flash before us, but literally be before us in the presence and in the very gaze of the all-knowing Christ who knows and sees all. He will test our hearts. He will test the very motive of our heart. He will test our deeds. And therefore today, this is quite a sobering text. To know who it is that will examine us, to know who it is that will ultimately judge us, and to evaluate what type of life we lived. Lord, I know that right now it's difficult for us to really grasp that, to allow that reality to hit us as we sit in the pew or behind the pulpit stand. Lord, but it is the reality, nevertheless, that should dominate our lives. And God, I pray that you would give the grace that your people need to walk with you in such a way that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you so that every member of Heritage Grace, every person here, all visitors that come that truly are in Christ, that they may rest easy and that they may know with full assurance and full conviction that they are living a life that is pleasing to you. But Father, help us also Help us not to settle for a nominal Christian life. Help us not to settle for the American Christianity that is all around us today that just, Lord, is so cozy and comfortable living in the 21st century and not taking any risks for Christ whatsoever. God, help us. Give us true zeal. Give us a true passion. Give us an all-consuming ambition, a holy ambition to live for your glory and for your praise. For Christ's sake, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, uh, this text in front of us is so important, isn't it? The title of today's message is entitled, Living to Please the King. Living to Please the King. And really, what um, this is all about is having a holy life. The Apostle Paul gives us several reasons, several incentives as to why we ought to live a holy life, to pursue a holy life, to pursue, as the language that he uses here, to be pleasing to God. 
To live a life that is worthy of the gospel. To live a life that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And he gives us several incentives. Let me give you the first one. The first one is really tied into the context that we've been looking at now for a while. Dealing with death, the physical body, the fact and the desire to be present with the Lord. Look at verses 6 through 8. Here he tells us, and he gives us this incentive, that death, in essence, has lost its sting. This is why we can live holy unto the Lord. Look at verse 6 with me. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Such amazing language here. This, this language of being at home and being absent, I thought it was interesting because the word here, to be at home, literally means to be a stay-at-home. And I thought, well, all the stay-at-home moms are going to connect with that. That's what the Greek word means, to be at st- a stay-at-home. In other words, to be comfortable with your surroundings, to be in a familiar place. That's what we are doing now in these bodies. We're in a familiar place. We know what it's like to have a body. You've never not been without your body, right? I know some people talk about, you know, near-death experiences where they float out of their body and things like that. Mostly those people are just delusional. But you and I are bound to these bodies. We cannot escape these bodies. These are our homes for now. But look at Paul's desire is to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. It's such an amazing thing because this whole passage is about familiarity. To be at home with the body literally means to be in your native land. That's what this word is used for. And the opposite of that, to be absent from the body, to be absent from the Lord, listen carefully now, to be absent from the Lord is literally to be in a place where you are a stranger. Isn't that interesting? The ancient writers, for example, Philo, would use this word absent, okay, to refer to someone traveling through a strange land. You ever been in a strange land? You don't really feel at home. I remember I felt that way not too long ago. We were in Israel visiting uh, Israel there a few months ago. Many of you have told you that. And I remember when we were walking through the Arab quarter, we're surrounded by thousands of Muslims all around us, you know, and I thought, we're not at home anymore, you know, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> we, we did not feel at home. We felt sh- like strangers, you know, watch what you say, watch what you do, watch your conduct, okay, because you're not at home anymore, and that's what it is to be absent from the Lord, is to not be at home, which means our rightful home is to be with the Lord, That is our ultimate place of residence. That is our ambition. That's what we're groaning for. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 4, the Apostle Paul talks about groaning in these bodies. And what are we groaning for? We are groaning for our ultimate home, our ultimate residence, our dwelling that's from heaven. Ultimately, we're waiting for our resurrection bodies because that means we're going to be with the Lord. I don't think there's anything more glorious than to know that our true home is to be with Christ, that our true home is to be with the Lord, that this place is just just a temporary station. 
that we must pass through on our way to our ultimate destination. And the people of God are always carefully taught to know and to realize that in this place, in this world, we have no lasting city. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says that. But quite to the opposite, Peter would tell us that we are to live like sojourners on the earth, exiles, aliens, pilgrims. This is, this is, a, this is a message that really challenges our allegiance, right? Our orientation in life. Are you just fine with being at home in this world? You love this world so much that you cannot fathom being apart from it. Are you so accustomed to the way that things run in this world? Are you so addicted to your technology, your comforts, your situation, your, your cars, your possessions, your money? I was going to say your job, but many of us, you know, for our, our jobs are oftentimes a drag, make you long for heaven more than anything. But you know what I mean. Even as Christians, we can get too comfortable here on earth. We can identify far too much with this present evil age and that we don't, so that we don't end up longing for our true home, which is heaven. It's so hard to do, right? It boils down to what is it that you're pursuing in this life? If you have earthly pursuits that dominate you, that that defines you, that is the ultimate purpose for which you are here, is to pursue earthly things that would be very hard for you to long for heavenly things. Very hard for you to even identify with that. So the question that we have to all ask ourselves in all sincerity, brothers and sisters, is what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing Christ or comfort? Are we pursuing Christ or culture? Are we pursuing Christ or cash? You get the point. Are we pursuing heavenly things? Do we have a heavenly trajectory about our life? Or are we just fine with this mundane, earthly existence that we have? And we are just fine if we just settle in in this place. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't love the world. He recognized it for what it was. It was fleeting. It was passing. The Apostle John would agree with the Apostle Paul. When he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one that does the will of God lives forever. See, that's the point. We should pursue and desire to do the will of God. That should be our all-consuming passion. And oh, be so careful, my friends, be so careful. We were talking about this, I forgot who I was talking about this with, but a few days ago I was discussing with somebody about the fact that this world is so incredibly skilled at keeping you in its clutches, of, of laying hold of you. It's so skilled at addicting you to its things, Right? It, it, matter of fact, it, is, it has mastered the art, whether sensual, visual, emotional tantalization, but it has mastered the art of getting you addicted to what it can provide. After all, brothers and sisters, that is all that the world has to offer. Visual, look at, uh, uh, even in 1 John there, chapter 2, that's what it is. 
It's sensual, the lust of the flesh. It's visual, the lust of the eyes. It is an emotive draw, the boastful pride of life. That's what the world provides. That's what it gives. So we all have to be aware of the world's ability to entertain us to death. Entertainment cannot hold your heart. Don't let it hold your heart. I'm not telling you what movies to watch, what not to Well, there are some movies I tell you not to watch, but I'm not, you know, not going to follow you around and be your Pharisee. But be oh so careful, dear brothers and sisters, not to fall into the trap. They say, oh, but that is so funny. Oh, but that show is so funny. I can't stop laughing. Of course it's funny because the world is a master genius at making you laugh at sinful and blasphemous and trivial things. That's all it has. That's all it has to offer. But for us, look at what Paul says even here in this text. That is not the orientation of our life. He says in verse 7, sort of in a parenthetical way, he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the orientation of our life. That's how we're supposed to live as sojourners, exiles, and strangers in this world. A life of faith, not a life of sight. What is that? That means that we are not driven or motivated or solely base our entire life off our senses, what we can feel, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can sense with our bodies, what we can smell. Sensory perception is not the only way that we perceive the world. We have a sixth sense here, faith. It's faith that we live by. We don't live by the things that we see. We live by faith in what? Faith in the promises of God, faith in the Word of God, faith in the truth of God. And we don't waver on those promises. And this is the way, notice, to be encouraged. You want to be encouraged in this very discouraging world, then you better be living a life of faith. I know no other way to be encouraged. But notice, dear friends, that this faith is not an empty faith. It's not a, it's not a fideistic faith. Fideism is that idea that you just believe something because that's the way it is. No, we don't accept it as an empty faith. Our faith is full of knowledge. It's full of knowing. Notice that's the way he argues even here. Being always of good courage, and then what does he say? Knowing that, and then he gives us the content of such knowledge. It is based on our good doctrine, the things that we know that gives that gives rise to our faith. That's how we do it. That's how we live. And oftentimes, this, this verse here, live by faith and not by sight, is often a very popular Christian maxim that we use all the time. But we must consider the context, what it is to live by faith in every and all situations. The context that he's talking about here is in order that we would live a life of godliness, Notice when he uses that word there, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the word walk is a word that Paul uses all over the place to describe a Christian's conduct, your entire conduct. This is how you live your life. This is how you relate to Christ right now. You know, Christ is not here. His body is not here. His physical presence is not here. So right now, we are to relate to him first and foremost through faith, through faith. Notice uh, also 2 Peter chapter 3. 
not only for Paul, but also for Peter. What he knew informed what he did. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, after he gave an apocalyptic description of the end of the world, he says, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? It is the opposite of what people, think, people might think would happen. Knowing that the, the, knowing that the world is going to end with fire, destruction, we would be tempted to throw in the towel and say, what's the point of living then? What's the point of doing anything if this is, the end, if this is how God's going to end the age? But Peter saw it the complete opposite way. Knowing that this is coming, that judgment is coming, this is how we ought to live in all holy conduct and godliness. Isn't that amazing? Listen, a godly person loves to be exhorted unto godliness. If you don't like to be exhorted unto godly living or holy living, you are not godly. If you are constantly trying to, to, to get away from exhortation, to get away from rebuke, to get away from accountability, if that's you, then, my dear friend, you are not godly. Because a godly person loves to be admonished, loves to be accountable to other brethren, loves to be spurred on to holy things. The holy things. And I can give you a slew of passages that talks about that. Romans 15, verse 14, that was Paul's desire that we would be well equipped to admonish one another. But now look at this. Not only is this idea that, you know, for us, death has lost its sting. No longer are we afraid to die because absent from the body means present with the Lord. But the second thing is that According to Paul, we can have holy ambitions, right? Look at verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Whether at home or absent, we can have this ambition to be pleasing to Him. That is the way that we ought to live our lives, ambitiously. But a lot of times, we tend to think of being ambitious as being sinful, of being self-willed, right? But there is a holy ambition that we can have. And guess what? There is no limit to how ambitious you can be. There is no limit to how driven you can be in this ambition, namely to be pleasing to Him. What a glorious ambition it is. Now focus with me here on this word ambition. Again, I just want to highlight that this is our call. And what is it, therefore, to be ambitious? You know, the word, the word there, ambition, comes from the word that means, literally means, loving honor. It comes from two Greek words, philos, which we get phileo, which is love, and then tima, which means honor. It literally means someone who loves honor or the love of honor. But you know, brothers and sisters, for us, the, the honor that we love, the honor that we're seeking is not honor from other people. It's not the praise of man that we're looking for. It's not the approval of man. To be pleasing to Him, that is Christ, is to seek His approval, is to gain His approbation, is to gain Christ's acceptance. That's what we want. That's what we long for. Let me have a life that is acceptable in the sight of God. Like the psalmist declared, 
Let my heart, my thoughts be acceptable before you. That's what we want. We want to love to be approved by our master, our Lord. That's the approval that we're looking for. You know that this is the key to the Christian life. There are so many people that will tell you there is no key to the, key to the Christian life. In a sense, that's true. But this is, a, okay, this is a good key. This is an important key to the Christian life. If you live solely to be pleasing to God, to be pleasing to Christ, everything else in your life will fall into place. You don't have to worry about being pleasing to your wife when you are being pleasing to God. You can rest easy that you are a good husband or a good wife if your sole ambition and desire in life is to, above all, be pleasing to Jesus Christ. Because if you seek to be pleasing to Him, you won't want to sin against your spouse. In ministry, if a person's motive is solely and only to be pleasing to God, he doesn't have to worry about dealing in underhanded and shameful and hidden ways. But he has the absolute assurance, the absolute confidence that what he is doing is, is because it's for the glory and honor of God. Who cares what men say? If you're pleasing God, there's certainly a sinful type of ambition, right? There is a sinful type, in other words, of orientation in your life, your pursuits, your ambition, your goal, your aim. James, or Jeremiah 45, verse 5, God says, do not seek great things for yourself. Don't seek great things for yourself. That is in tandem with James chapter 3, verse 16, that says that where self-seeking and selfish ambition, we just talked about good ambition, but James says where selfish ambition exists, guess what? Confusion and every evil thing is there. Isn't that amazing? That is what our sinful, self-seeking hearts are capable of producing. Confusion and every evil thing. Is there confusion in your home? It's because someone is seeking to please something other than Christ. Is there confusion in the church? It's because someone is seeking to please something other than Christ. It will always boil down to that. That's at the root. And so our duty is to look to the heart, to examine the heart, to do as the Puritans would tell us to do. Do some heart work. Examine yourself. Where, oh God, is there selfish ambition in my heart? Let it be that my only ambition is to please you. And then all my other relationships will be pleasing to you as well. It's not just in relationships. It's not just in ministry. It's in every area of your life, every conceivable area of your life. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, uh, Paul says this exact thing. He says in Colossians 1, 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we haven't ceased to pray for you and to ask that you, be, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, what is the purpose of knowledge? So that you can be smart? No. So that you can be the intellect? No. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. I love that. 
No compromise. In no area of your life, no compromise. Every area of your life is dominated by this holy ambition to be pleasing to God. So that when you look at what you're like at work, when no one else is there with you, you've got to ask the question, am I being pleasing to God? As someone once said, who you are when no one is there and when you're all by yourself is who you are. So we must, dear brethren, seek to be pleasing to Him in all respects, in all respects. This is a uh, universal fact. Look at the way that Paul phrases this. He says we should be pleasing to Him. He says whether, he says, uh, I prefer to be, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 9 again, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. It doesn't matter if you're here on earth. It doesn't matter if you've gone to be with, with, with God in heaven. This holy ambition will never end. That's what's beautiful, is that the ambition you have now will correspond with what will be going on in heaven. Where there you will be pleasing to Him eternally, seeking to glorify Him with an unsinning heart. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So that this ambition may go through a transition, but it will never be terminated. It will never stop. And therefore, you and I are admonished today never to stop. Never to stop pursuing Him. Never to stop pleasing Him. Let me just read you a few scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn, this is a masterful verse, Ephesians 5.10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I think that's the the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he says, discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. That should be our passion in life, to know that, to learn that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, because the language may change, but the essence of the reality of the truth here is the same. Look at this. Only conduct yourselves, Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Surely that is pleasing to Him. Living in such a way that you, that you have a proper life, a life that is fitting. To be worthy means that it's equal. It's, it's, it's equal. People look into your life and they say, your life is equal. That may not be perfect. But it's approximate. It's not the gospel, you know it, you profess it, you talk about it, but your life is not equal to it. Something is off. You are yet in your sin. You are yet in compromise. You have yet severed the grip and the dominion of sin in your life. You have yet, in other words, to repent and to be born again. But for the child of God, their, their, their whole passion in life is to have a, a walk that is equal with the gospel. A life that says, yes, the gospel is true. It has transformed my life. It has changed me. There has been a radical transformation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Thess 4, 4, 1 says, Finally then, my brethren, 
Uh, brethren, he says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Now watch this if you're there. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. He says, just as you actually do this, he says that you excel still more. See, it's, it's never a point that it's enough. I've walked with God enough. I've been pleasing to God enough. No, that's part of this holy ambition. It never ends, remember? And you never get complacent. You never enter into a state of lukewarmness. You never get into a place where I've had enough of the Christian life. I, I, think, I, I think I'm okay. I got a handle on this thing. I, I do, look, I do my devotions, right? I do my church, and that's it. The rest of my life is for me. No. As a Christian... Your whole life is sought to be dominated by Christ. And what is it precisely to be pleasing to How do you know that you're pleasing to Him? How do you know? 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 gives us some explicit instruction. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. I take those things to be uh, basically synonymous or appositional to each other. They explain one another. Keeping His commandments is doing the things that is pleasing to Him. And then He gives us this. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. All the bases are covered right there. Love God, love man. Okay? Anytime you have any problems with your communion with God, you're not loving Him rightly. Anytime you're sinning against God, you're not loving Jesus Christ rightly, as you're commanded to. Anytime you're out of sorts with somebody in the church or out of step or there's a relationship problem in the home, in the marriage, in the family, in the church, doesn't matter. We are called, once again, to love one another and thereby... You can know that you are pleasing to Him. That, that's what our heart should be. And if that's not our heart, then we need to repent in our heart. That is what our heart should be. That's what our attitude in this life should be is, Oh God, I just want to be pleasing to You. I don't have a whole lot of time left in this life. This life, you say in your word, James chapter 4, life is like a vapor here today gone tomorrow. Just like that. And should he, should he cut our day short through some tragedy or accident or sickness or something, then it would be even shorter, which moves us to our next and our last point. Verse 10, not only sting of death removed, not only can we have holy sanctified ambitions, but three, thirdly, the sobering reality of Christ's tribunal. Let's read that together. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to whatever he has done, whether good or bad. And the word bad is a good translation. The word evil, some translations have evil, is not a good translation. It's the difference between two Greek words, phalos, kakos. Kakos means evil, moral evil, 
phaulos, however, can refer to those things which are not necessarily morally evil, but simply inferior to that which is right or good or, or, or morally right. It, it, can, it, can, it can speak of that which is worthless. It doesn't necessarily have to be evil, but it can be worthless. Think of your own life. Hasn't there been those times when, if you really examine, you've done things, not really evil things, right? But they're also not of any eternal value. And sometimes it's a lot of that. And so at the end of the day, you end up wasting a lot of time with no eternal value. You, have, you end up wasting a lot of time with unredeemed time. And uh, God calls us to redeem the time. So important to redeem the time. But notice what he says here. We must all appear. Notice the universal scope of that reality, dear friends. All of us must appear. And the point of it is this. You will appear individually. Say goodbye to your spouse. Say goodbye to mommy and daddy. You will appear before Christ on your own. On your own two feet. You will stand before His awful judgment seat and He will examine all of your life, all of your motives, all of your deeds. How can God do this? How can Christ do this? Because He is omniscient. Because He is all-powerful. Because He knows and sees and He knows everything. He knows everything about you. A lot of times when I preach to young people at UNT, I tell them that one day God is going is to rewind the, the DVD of your life, and er, your entire life will be, come out before you, and you will be judged based on the things that you've done, whether good or bad. Now, I think it's important for us to distinguish, right, that this is a judgment, I believe, Paul is referring to here, the judgment of believers, the judgment of believers, whereby they will be judged not for condemnation, not to decide whether or not you go to heaven or hell, but a Christian's judgment before the judgment seat of Christ is to whether or not he will be rewarded or not for the things that he's done, whether or not things will last, whether or not things will have any eternal value, whether or not his works, your works, my works will be burned up or not, or whether you will be rewarded, whether you will be rewarded. I think John MacArthur has this right. Listen to this quote. He says, In that day, the full truth about your lives character, deeds will be made clear to each believer. He says each individual believer. Each will discover the real verdict of his or her ministry, service, and motives. All hypocrisy, all pretense will be stripped away. All temporal matters with no eternal significance will vanish like wood, hay, and stubble, and only what is to be rewarded as eternally valuable will be left. But the heart of a believer is that our works not burn up. The heart of any true minister, for example, as Paul touches on, is that he would build on a good foundation and that he would build with good building material. This is all analogous and metaphorically speaking of the ministry. Paul laid a sufficient foundation. Look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, maybe to explore this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, According to the grace of God, which has been given to me like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation. In other words, he's saying, look, I was a good apostle, a wise ap apostle. I was like an ingenious architect laying the foundations of the church. And certainly he is, right? 
We have a whole ecclesiology based on what Paul has given us. He was a master builder, a genius of an architect, an engineer, ecclesiastically. He says, and another is building on it, on this foundation. But each man must be careful how he builds. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You can't deviate, in other words, from the orthodox church, the orthodoxy of apostolic teaching. Now, which I think is just kind of a, in summary form there. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, just like Corinthians says. It will be, it, we will appear before Christ. Everything that we do will be evident. He says, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work will, which he has built on remains, excuse me, if, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He will suffer loss. What does that mean? But it cannot mean that he will be damned because of the next phrase. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. I tell you what, I know that I just said that this, this judgment will not be for condemnation, but don't think for a moment that it won't be severe. Don't think for a moment that it will not be the weightiest day of your life when you appear before Almighty God and He tests all your works. That should grip us. It gripped the apostle. Matter of fact, look what he goes on to say in verse 11 here, 2 Corinthians. Verse 11, look at how he proceeds. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Where is the fear of the Lord today? Where is the fear of God there are so many people doing so many things that reveal they don't fear God. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about Christian ministers, people that preach and handle the Word of God in such a way that reveals to me they're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of the judgment that they will face one day for handling the Word of God. They haven't learned well what James says in James chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. I, dear friends, will receive a much stricter judgment. And I do believe that there is enough there in that passage that means, yes, I'm judged by people, but please, the judgment of God is the one that matters you can judge me, and that's well and fine. You can get angry, and you, know, you can rush out the, the doors. You can, you know, you can uh, get upset and write me nasty emails. Okay, I guess that's severe judgment. But man, the judgment that's going to be really strict is the judgment of God, where everything I've ever taught will come under divine scrutiny. And God help me that I have never preached any error in His name. You see, when you understand just how accountable you are to God, it will change everything. It will change the way that you live your life in your marriage. It will change the way you conduct yourself in the home, in the family, with the kids, at work, in the church. 
to realize, oh God, let none of my works blaspheme your name. Let none of my works be fail to be fitting and worthy. And, and let none of my works fail to be that which pleases you. Dear God, have mercy on me. I do fear the Lord, brothers and sisters. I am terrified of the day of judgment when my works will be tested before God. And I think we all need to have that healthy fear in our souls. Let me just bring one last passage before you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. This is how incredibly transparent we will be on that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man, each man's praise will come to him from God. It's the only praise that matters. I don't care what people tell me at a conference. I don't care what people say to me after a sermon. I don't care what people have said about my books or my writings, anything like that. The only praise that really matters is the praise that will come from God. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, um, I know it's difficult at times to even fathom that everything that we do will have an effect. That everything that we do, Lord, there will be a consequence. And Lord, we just pray that that you would help us, Lord, because we want to be pleasing to you. God, that you would help us where we fall short, that we would not get lazy in our sanctification, but that we would be honest with ourselves and say, this area is out of line, and I have to make it right now and not waste any more time. Time is precious. Time is a gift. Help us, Lord, to redeem it for your glory and your praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.